Welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swapflix. I'm a little exhausted from the bachelor party we all went to. Oh, that's right. <laughs> God, that's what right. a good time. The only time I've ever been to a bachelor party, by the way. Yeah. Really? I as well. Yeah. And I paid $30 for the experience. Okay. This was like a X-rated, quote unquote, wrestling event, which basically means that it was uh, Wildcat Pro Wrestling had a mm-hmm. bar. I mean, they yeah. used to do that at the Shamrock. <laughs> there was more twerking than usual. There was a lot of twerking. That's true. The women's match was probably the raciest thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> The bachelor party branding of that event gave me pause, and right. uh, I think with good reason, because like yeah. when they were pulling out blow up dolls and like chanting "you fucked up" at a guy for like getting engaged. I don't know. I was just like, "What am I doing here?" I thought right. those "you fucked up" chants were funny, <laughs> and there was like a lap dance part. You didn't want to take a lap dance, and I don't know. Yeah, his reluctance to participating in bachelor party events was kind of cute. Yeah. yeah, it did have two of the best wildcat matches back to back. I'd ever seen live. So I enjoyed it. It warmed up. Yeah. yeah. And towards the end, we were closer to the action. We could actually see what was going on. And uh, the matches got a little like more localized and not just like celebrity stu- yeah. stuff. I screamed my heart out for Danny Flamingo. Yes. It was great. He came up short. <laughs> and an interesting crowd, too. Yeah. I don't. By interesting. <laughs> just interesting. I'll just leave, I'll leave it, it there. there. Okay. Yeah. I, had a, I had a few interactions with some uh, interesting people. I found myself on the wrong side of the card a couple of times. And I, I I found a few crowd members that were aligned with me, um, all of the supporters of Mickey drama. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, there were some very passionate people that did not want to hear uh, opposing chants. Yeah. It was a pretty bro-y crowd, mm-hmm. is how I'll put it. Yeah. But towards the end, the entire room was chanting, shall met, shall met. Uh, yeah. But you know... That's my hometown. I got <laughs> yeah. to feel something when I hear that. And you also made a best friend, too. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I've, I've had nightmares about that. Sure. Interaction. Okay. I, I, I would, too. I guess the next big couple of events on our timeline are WrestleMania, yes. which I will not be seeing live with y'all because it is also Overlook Film Fest weekend, Ugh. which I cannot miss. Yeah. So we will be divided there, but we will come together to watch the Oscars live on TV next week. Yes. That's yeah. right. I'm looking forward to cheap pizza and cheap champagne. That's like the most I'm looking forward to. Oh, yeah. But today we're going to do our recap of like who was nominated for best director that we did last year. Mm-hmm. I'm really into like rituals. I like like redoing yeah. the same topic every year. That's um, right. Is this like a worthwhile subject for y'all? <laughs> does, yeah, I does think Does it get so. you like amped up? Yeah, it does. And it's uh, it's different from last year because this year I feel like I'd, I'd seen most of the movies before. But... I reevaluated my position on actually all three of the movies that I watched before. I, I, my opinion changed. Nice. And it was fun to kind of recontextualize the films that are nominated this year with those earlier films. I think it's super fun. It might be fun to do other categories depending, you know, like special effects. That would be cool one year. Uh, but I think that this is a great topic, Brandon. I, ha- I had a little topic regret what do you call that mm-hmm. remorse yeah because <laughs> uh, i thought you know this would have been our one opportunity to talk about to leslie which i think is like right. the most interesting oscar story this year um and will not matter whatsoever once the ceremony's over like yeah. that movie will disappear into the abyss uh so maybe we should have done an andrea riseborough 
highlight instead. But yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the experience of this group of movies anyway. So Absolutely. And it did make me appreciate some of these directors a little bit more okay, with some good. of the movies yeah, we're going to talk sure. about. All right, I'm tripling down. We're doing this no matter what <laughs> next year, <laughs> especially if Spielberg is nominated because the right. uh, repeat of having to pick a new Spielberg movie every year for this topic is just right. only going to get us into more and more bizarre territory, right. I think. A ritual within a ritual. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what else have y'all been watching besides Oscar prep? So uh, this is actually a movie I watched probably two days after we finished the last podcast. And it is an animated movie from Hungary called The Son of the White Mare, which was directed, I think it was maybe released in the United States in 1983. It's directed by Marcel Jankovics, and it's a Hungarian fairy tale adapted through this like really beautiful, psychedelic, kaleidoscopic animation. It's about uh, this magical kingdom or a series of three kingdoms that are overtaken by these dragons and this kind of like icy queen of the kingdoms is turned into a mare and she gives birth to these sons and then they um, go off and um, conquer these three dragons reclaim the three kingdoms so it's very like traditional folk tale you have like the three trials and then a gnome that comes and visits them three times (laughs) and eats their porridge you know and i just really really love those traditional folk tales and the animation was just like one of the most gorgeous things i've seen like things are constantly shifting like you'll see the faces of two lovers and they meld into a vase and then the vase spills over and it's like blood and the kingdom is you know rotting and just a lot of magical colorful imagery and I think it's like it might be two hours long and it's just a complete trip the whole way through and I really really loved it and I would really recommend it to absolutely anyone. I've definitely seen the images from it, and it has that like really flat style where like mm-hmm. everything seems like it's on the same plane. Yeah, that's like it reminds yeah it reminds me a lot of like seventies psychedelia yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, it almost made me think of like Matisse style yeah. uh, because there aren't any real um, like black outlines. It's all these color blocks, but they're really really intricate. Like paint and by numbers style. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's some very interesting kind of visual tricks. Too. Like a lot of animation is just, it's like a static camera, basically. And, you know, the image is moving and morphing. But there are a couple of moments in this film where it's almost like there's a camera. Like uh, this mare is recounting the story of the fallen kingdoms to her young son, who eventually like breaks out and is the impetus for all of the brothers going to the underworld to get the kingdoms back. So she's recounting this history. And then you see the frame like jerking sideways and it kind of like goes back to real life and he's tugging on her hair. I don't know. It does some really, really interesting like visual things that I don't expect from animation. Um, So if you love animated film, I would recommend it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Also, the three princesses are... There's one princess in particular who, like, just is a bitch and has her tits out, and she's great. I mean, it's just it's just fun. It's just, like, folklore nonsense, that, uh, and I totally dug it. 
Uh, so, James, what have you been watching? So, since we're going to be talking about earlier films from um, some kind of established directors, I decided to go back and watch uh, Sean Baker, who did Florida Project, Tangerine, you know, Red Rocket, and his first feature-length film from 2004. It's called Takeout. Really interesting. Where I think the budget was like three grand. It was nothing. It was like him with just a camera, and he got access to this actual like Chinese restaurant in New York. And the film just follows this illegal Chinese immigrant who has this debt that he needs to pay off. And it's not much. It's like a few hundred dollars. And the film is just kind of like, it feels like a documentary. It's just following him as he does his rounds, like his delivery all over the city. And it's shot on like this really kind of like cheapish looking digital camera kind of reminded me of like bamboozled or something like that visual style but it's like very authentic new york chinese restaurant and just following this guy like going to do a delivery interacting with a new yorker going back to the restaurant and it the whole film kind of just follows him accumulating tip money and it just feels like really authentic lived in like it was actually capturing a real like slice of life. And then it has a very kind of on the nose, but like pretty tragic ending um, that I, I don't want to spoil, but it made me very upset, <laughs> like deeply upset for this guy. But it, I don't know. It was a really, really exciting movie. And I, kind of watching how is it progressed from that to like Tangerine and going all the way to like Florida Project. I don't know. He has a very interesting filmography. Is there any sex work depicted in that movie? Because I was thinking like the only movie I knew that he did before Florida Project was um, called Starlet, which was also about, a, a, I think, a porno actress in L.A. But I don't know. Every movie I've ever heard of him touching always has some sort of like sex work element in like the main story. I don't think this does. No, this yeah. is more just trying to capture the life of like undocumented Chinese immigrants. Yeah. And I don't know, just in this restaurant, the main lady that runs it is like she actually did run that restaurant and she is a character and she feels like larger than life. I don't know, just shots of them like prepping the food and just biking through New York. It just feels like really, really gritty and like of its time, like a little time capsule. So it's a really, really great movie. I would highly recommend it, That's especially yeah. if you like his other stuff. Yeah. And the I think the production is interesting because it was co-directed by Shi Ching Tzu. So the movie is in Chinese. Okay. So basically he wrote the script and then they worked together to translate it into Chinese. So he couldn't allow any improvisation because any improvising, he wouldn't be able to understand it. And there, there is one improvised scene that he was like, <laughs> he he was stressed out about it because he had no idea what they were saying, so he had no idea if it was good or not. And it's it's a really touching moment in the movie. But I think that that also lent itself to authenticity because it's not like a story about Chinese immigrants that's written and spoken in English. It like it is in Chinese. Like I don't know. I'm just glad that they made that choice because I felt like. It, it was really effective. And I don't know. And also as someone that's done delivery jobs in the past, just like 
the grind of like that work is tough. Yeah. Yeah. And he's doing it on a bike too. So he's just biking all over New York back yeah. and forth. And like people are not respectful to him, you know, give him like a dollar tip and basically ignore him that he's even existing. So he just has to like deal with this all night and, you know, he's getting his little tips and at the end he has his money for his debt, but things happen. And it's like really tra- just the life of like that minimum wage delivery job. I still have residual stress from kitchen work like seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. That like watching that show, The Bear, that blew up last oh, year. Oh yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. like, oh yeah, that's that's <laughs> what that feels like. I love that show. I'd forgotten yeah. exactly how stressful it is, but that's what it is. Yeah, they also they have a lot of scenes of just you know back of house cooking this food, and I feel like Chinese food is totally devalued so it was really nice just to have documentation of you know open to close this is how the food is made and it looked delicious it made me very hungry i wanted takeout um <laughs> but i didn't want to make someone bike in the rain for it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah what, what have you been watching brandon uh i have one quick recommendation for both of you Ooh. uh one may be quicker than the other but i uh i watched two movies from directors that got more acclaim later um, I watched Oliver Stone's U-Turn from 1997. I've seen that. You've seen that? Okay. Yeah. I thought you might be interested in it or maybe even revisiting it. Oh, man, I saw it a long time ago. It's got major detour vibes. Mm. Like, yeah. In the movie, Sean Penn plays this kind of down and out asshole. He calls himself like a slimy bastard, I think, at some point, <laughs> which I think is pretty accurate. And the universe just kicks the shit out of him for the full like 100 minutes of the movie. His car breaks down in the small town. He owes these Las Vegas gangsters a bunch of money. And the universe just conspires to like not let him leave this like death trap of a small Arizona shithole. Mm. And he falls in love with Jennifer Lopez, who looks fucking incredible in the movie. Uh. There are things that happen to her that bothered me. Like, I feel like if the movie were really focused, every bad thing that happens would happen to Sean Penn specifically. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. But instead, uh, there's a lot of misogynist violence mixed in with the stuff yeah. that, you know, in that post Tarantino style that Stone was doing around that time, like natural born killers, like the violence is pretty grotesque and not really focused. But I liked how grotesque and unfocused the camera work was. Like, I, that's what I was going to bring up. The only thing I really remember about that movie, because it's been over 20 years, is like, the visual style was yeah. really interesting to me. It's like really grainy and yeah. gritty looking and and playful. Really like yeah. it's got that kind of Soderbergh like handheld. You know, I, I'm gonna shoot all my normal establishing shots and shot reverse shot conversations, but then I'm just gonna insert a bunch of weird details. So like, you don't even have a choice not to think of the noir title detour. That will be forced in your face because he will shoot the road signs that say detour a bunch of times from these like (laughs) music video angles to like reinforce the point. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of fun character work in there. It just reminded me of like both the noir films we were just watching and like the sort of like postmodern regurgitation of that stuff that we saw in like Lost Highway recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty good like daylight noir that I think is actually better than Natural Born Killers because it's not as shrill and like relentless is that movie which i find kind of annoying Mm -hmm. um it's like the same style but a little slowed down and spaced out i've always kind of been conflicted about oliver stone i don't really like him that much yeah i never but i'll have to revisit that one because that sounds i think you'd like it yeah besides the misogyny i mean yeah and it also you know 
stars Sean Penn. So it's kind of like part of the package. Right. I also watched uh, Jane Schoenbrunn's movie from before. Oh, cool. We're all going to the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, they leaked it themselves. Yeah. I think someone posted a version of the movie that wasn't like the final cut. And they were like, no, you need these other scenes. <laughs> so then they like leaked their own movie. But it's this documentary from 2018 about the Slenderman phenomenon. Uh-huh. It's called A Self-Induced Hallucination. And it's pretty incredible. Like, it's all found footage from YouTube. Mm-hmm. I think the only, like, self-generated content is for the opening credits, there's a word processing document where they type out the title of the movie and mm-hmm. who directed it. Yeah. Uh, and you see that as, like, real life, like, screen capture. And then from there, it's just like chronicling the full Slenderman phenomenon, starting with these like basically like children who are like self-appointed experts, yeah. you know, commenting on whether or not the Slenderman is real, um, basically discussing like 4chan and something awful on Reddit posts, yeah, um, you know, debunking or proving whatever about the Slenderman. And then from there, it turns into more like genuine creepypasta where people are making Slenderman short films or like Slenderman proof videos or like Slenderman novelty raps, like it's a really <laughs> wide range of like user submitted content. And then, you know, the real life tragedy happened where those like 12 year olds stabbed their schoolmate because yeah. of the Slenderman. And that I think is where most movies would end. Like there was this documentary in 2017 called Beware the Slenderman that was like very, fear-mongering about what children are doing online when you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I actually like that kind of stuff. Like, I like being freaked out about the dangers of the internet. The youths. Yeah. And I I like to be submerged in this, like, ephemeral online content that would not be presented to me. I wouldn't find this stuff naturally. You know, I need someone to, like, bring it to the table for me to look at it and show me how bizarre it is. Yeah. So instead of just, like, showing that that's how this meme evolved... It goes beyond that and starts showing reaction videos to the HBO doc trailer and then reaction videos to the, there's a generic like Sony Pictures horror movie called Slenderman from 2018 that I do not remember. What? Really? I was going to ask if you've seen it because I do remember that really movie Really trashy to do that. Yeah. I remember the Bye Bye Man, which I felt like was kind of like touching yeah. on it without going No, it was just gross. straight up called the Slenderman. Slenderman. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was a Lifetime movie called like Terror in the Woods that played it like a like a true crime story of the week thing. Ugh. And these kids are like reacting to that. They're like redigesting the professional yeah. content. And then it starts mixing user submitted videos with professional media covering the news of like a stabbing and like the cultural fallout from it. Yeah. And it's pretty fascinating. Cool. Like it's really cool. Yeah. And it gets across pretty much everything I think that we're all going to the World's Fair has to say too where it's like a lot of these videos are just people alone in a bedroom desperate to connect to some kind of like social community. Right. So like when they're saying that the Slender Man is haunting me or I've become his proxy or something like that, it's impossible not to think of like Anna Cobb's character in that movie. Yeah. And like it's undeniably cool that this person graduated from making this like DIY bedroom art for like no money where they're just compiling YouTube clips mm-hmm. to making like now they're working for A24 for their next movie. Like they're they're making like Ugh. professional movie productions I'm now. I'm so excited. So like I don't even want to say like, oh, I liked this earlier version better than mm-hmm. the World's Fair one, but it just really just speaks to like 
I mean, stuff that I make y'all watch all the time, like the road movie or Wrinkles the Clown or something like that. Like, I like this, like, archival preservation of, like, internet bullshit. Well, and it's exciting, too, because I remember the Slender Man being a phenomenon when I was, like, I I think it was in middle school or something. So it's fun to be at the age where now people my age or a little older are documenting things about like things that were viral when we were kids, you know, it's like the media is eventually going to reflect nostalgia for my childhood, which is very fun. And I don't know, I think that also informs more of what we're all going to the world's fairs about, you know, it's like you need three points to create a line. Like I, I'm really excited about their work. And seeing the threads that continue to be interesting to them through those two films. And then that just makes me excited for whatever they come up with next. Yeah. I'm thinking like the actual YouTube clips, the range was from like 2009 to 2018. Yeah. So if you were like, let's say 12, 13 years old when that started, you're like in your twenties by the time it ended. Mm -hmm. And this movie came out at a time, I feel like where the cycle had like pretty much completed. Yeah. And they had like pretty much gotten the full scope of it. Which, I don't know, it's very it's very cool to have this, like, very clear document of, like, what that was and how it affected mm-hmm. very lonely people's yeah. social thinking. I don't know. Yeah, and, like, a documentation of, like, the regurgitation and mastication of, like, yeah. memes. I don't know. I think that that is super interesting. There's also something really devastating about the end credits where it's, it's showing you the original YouTube clips, like the titles. Mm-hmm. And all it is is screen grab title view count so like the slender man sony pictures horror movie has like millions and millions of views and then like some of the user submitted content is like 10 views yeah or, like 13 views yeah and it's like it just hits you again the devastation of like someone being isolated right i got the sense from watching we're all going to the world's fair that jane has a lot of compassion for those yeah. people it really comes across like People that are putting, like, everybody is creating content and adding to the media landscape, and you can just be this tiny little isolated ping that basically nobody pays attention to. And it's like being out in the middle of the ocean trying to attract a ship or something, and nobody can see you. I just, I really think that it's cool how they honor those people. I can also tell you just from, like, running this website, like, both I feel the embarrassment of, like, putting earnest thoughts out there online (laughs) for like a small audience Mm -hmm. but also like any post that we have from like over a year ago that includes like a youtube link Mm -hmm. it's dead at this point like the youtube link has either disappeared or migrated or changed in some way and there's some like serious academic archival work going on here where like those smaller clips would basically disappear into oblivion right and part of the conversation we would be missing without that preservation yeah I think, I don't know, I think it's like important work. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We are going to talk about more earlier works from directors that moved on to bigger stuff. Um, but I mean, even bigger and bigger stuff. I, mean, I already invoked Spielberg's name. Right. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about all five nominees for this year's best director category at the Oscars. Um, but we're going to kind of dial the clock back and look at some of their earlier films and see how they relate to the new stuff, whether they've improved over time. Whether they've sunk into their worst qualities, I don't know. <laughs> There's a wide range of stuff here. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. I've always loved watching the Oscars. 
every single year, I would imagine what it feels like to be in that room. But only, you know, that dream only existed in my in my imagination. So for this to be really happening, I am ecstatic. Uh, what 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 a true honor! Thank you so much to the Academy. It's it feels so good when you work on a movie. And when we did, I mean, honestly, it was it was just this little movie that we shot for 38 days in Simi Valley. Uh, so to get that kind of recognition with 11 nominations, that is absolutely incredible. None of us could have ever imagined uh, this would happen, uh, and yet here we are. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful feeling, and I'm so, so happy to our family. I feel like I made this clear last year, but I want to repeat. We do not Oscar prognosticate. We have no like predictive quality to this listing. No. I did look on the Vegas odds of like who's most likely to win the category and that's the order we're going to go in. Do you as a you don't have to answer this if it's going to take too long, but do you know how they make that determination? At this point in the race, god, this is the stuff I didn't want to get into cuz like, <laughs> I'm embarrassed by how much I pay attention to this stuff. But like at this point in the race, there have been enough individual awards from like unions and guilds gotcha that like let's say the sag um the screen actors guild had their votes in last week right so like that is the largest guild that votes in the oscars Mm -hmm. the most amount of members are there so like if something other than everything everywhere all at once had won or like swept those awards Mm -hmm. that might have like lowered its chances to win but up until now the Daniels have been just like sweeping That's every. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it seems pretty clear. Ceremony, yeah. Like yeah. last night was the um night before we we're recording this was the Independent Spirit Awards and they won all of they those. won that too. Yeah. yeah, which is great. Like they made a very tiny movie in like a month's time. Which if you look at like all the stuff they filmed for that movie is pretty insane. Like yeah, it looks like a superhero special effects film. Well, and the movie we're going to talk about today wasn't that also made in like I don't know twenty days. Yeah, very like ambitious oversaturated work that I think when we saw it in March last year, I don't know that like we would have thought a full year later, we'd be talking about everything everywhere all at once being like an Oscar lock. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's bizarre. Yeah. It's just slowly like kind of happened over time. Just like it created this buzz hearing from other people who don't even normally go to the movies talking about it. Yeah. To winning all these awards. It's just kind of, been a progression yeah and it's a very good movie it was swamp flicks number one movie of last (laughs) year there you go i kind of wish we had picked something else just because like all of the oxygen in the independent film realm has been sucked up by this one title yeah mad god ain't winning any awards well there you go marcel the shell might that was our number two uh and that's like contending for best animated was mad god not nominated for best animation (laughs) (laughs) how is it not how is it not though well okay come on it's not like these people are actually watching as much stuff as we do. We watch way more movies than the average Oscar voter does. What they do watch is screeners. And we got to see that a little bit of ourselves last year because I got into the Southeast Film Critic Association. So mm-hmm. we had a bunch of screeners sent to our home, our, our home base. Yeah. And I think this year I had seen more of the Oscar-nominated films than any other year before. And it's just like a clear picture that like these people go out to the local LA and New York city, like press screenings for Oscar contention. And they watch the DVDs that get mailed to their house. Yeah. RJLE films or whoever was distributing shutter. I think whoever was distributing mad God was not mailing out mad right. God screeners to people's yeah, homes. For right. Oscar yeah. This is not a good use of my time and resources. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's expensive to do it in the first place. Like 
that's what's incredible about A24 is they are incredibly good at marketing. Yeah. Like as much as you could push back on them at, for like having a quote unquote house style or a perceived one that like 20 year olds are like every good movie has A24 at the front of it. Like right. they're not that amazing, but they're really good at getting people to go see pretty outlandish over the top high I mean, style movies. Yeah. It works for me when I see an A24, I still am like, okay, this is probably going to be it. interesting. Yeah. I will say now I feel that way about Neon, too. I'm like, if yeah. it's yeah, Neon, Neon, I'm going to watch it. And Neon had a very nice box set of uh, award screeners for yeah, us to watch last they year. They sure did. <laughs> A24 also distributed the first film from the Daniels called Swiss Army Man. It did not take much effort to find the earlier work to highlight for them because it was pretty much this or the turn down for what music video, which I think are like <laughs> the two things they were famous for before mm-hmm. everything yeah. everywhere. Um, I enjoyed Swiss Army Man back in 2016. It was on my top 20 list for that year. Very low. I think yeah. like that one and uh, Girl Asleep that we talked about recently were like 19 and 20 on my yes. list. Mm-hmm. And they're similarly twee in a way that like I could see why I kind of grouped them together. Yeah, uh, totally. This, this has an earnestness to it that I think their new film does as well. Where it's like someone really like being vulnerable and putting themselves out there and then discovering the great wide wonder of like human life and the full spectrum of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And like it could be a little garden state-ish, you know? And I think a lot of people are pushing back on the earnestness of everything everywhere for the same reasons. Yeah. But in both cases, I think they undercut the earnestness a lot. In Swiss Army Man, they undercut it with fart jokes. And I believe the first image of the film is like an attempted suicide. Yeah. Like it's pretty dark and pretty gross. In the film, Paul Dano is seemingly stranded on a some kind of like island and has gone through the full Tom Hanks castaway cycle and has chosen to end his life instead of spending another day alone. Just as he's about to choke himself with like what looks like a tied up bed sheet, a corpse washes up on the shore and it's Daniel Radcliffe's dead body. And he goes to like perform CPR on it to see if like he can revive his new friend. (laughs) And uh, all that comes out of Dan Radcliffe is farts, like body rattling farts. (laughs) He just keeps farting and farting and farting violently. And it escalates to the point where Paul Dano decides to ride his body like a jet ski. uh, And the farts propel them (laughs) to the mainland away from the island. Uh, And the rest of the movie is their adventure. This suicidal man and his corpse friend. Um, through this sort of like forest area back to civilization. As they're moving along, Paul Dano sort of explains what life is to this corpse who asks a lot of childish questions about everything, about like sexuality and like friendship and like shame and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And it becomes kind of a character study because like Daniel Radcliffe is such a blank slate and has no real characteristics other than he is dead and farts a lot <laughs> and he has a magical boner right. that like works as a compass <laughs> they call him a multi-purpose tool guy right. like a synonym to swiss army man yeah um and his body does all kinds of magical things he can start fires he can like shoot things out of his mouth but like he has no personality really he just has like questions about everything and because of that what we get is Paul Dano's perspective on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn more and more how flawed and fucked up he is as a human being because he had like a loveless childhood. Basically his, his parents like shamed him and made him feel bad for his basic bodily functions and turned him into what I would comfortably describe as like an incel type. Like yeah. he like 
stares at a girl on the bus that he's obsessed with, uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Takes a picture of her. Yeah. And kind of obsesses over it. And everything he tells Daniel Radcliffe about how to interact with other people is just like wrong and bad (laughs) and is like worsening his own relationships with the greater human world. And then I think where the movie gets really earnest in like a surprising way is like, instead of hyper fixating on the girl on the bus so much, he like instead falls in love with his new friend. Yeah. And they become like boyfriends pretty much like over the course of the journey and they make out and, uh, I don't know, dream of a life together once they get back to like home base. Yeah. It's a really endearing movie in a way that you would not expect from a movie that's basically like a meme about a farting corpse with a magical boner. Yeah. And uh, it worked for me both in the theater and at home. I I don't know if y'all saw it when it originally came out or if your feelings have changed about it. I did not see it. This was the first time that I saw it. And I really, really liked it. And I think my favorite aspect is like the I mean it's like a celebration of the disgusting like wondrous things that the body does in order for us to survive and questioning the kind of entrenched shame that we have about our own bodies and our own feelings all of the the primary things that Daniel Radcliffe's body does are like disgusting like he farts he spits And he has a magical boner. And all of these things are like essential tools that Hank uses to survive and make it back to civilization. So a fart is transformed into like, uh, in the beginning, a motorboat. At one point, he's been bottling up fart so much and like, releases it that that they like propel themselves across a gorge or like <laughs> up out of a gorge like a rocket yeah and daniel radcliffe's character is like without personality but also he has no sense of shame or of these like instilled social codes so he is just constantly questioning paul dano's character like like why do you feel ashamed when you do this like why do you have these feelings and that allows him to kind of rethink the shame that he has about his body and himself. I I don't know. I just like, I feel like we could all do with a little less self-abasement. So I just think it's like, I love things that glorify trash. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, this was actually the second time I had seen it. And I think I liked it more this time. I think initially when I saw it, it was... I was kind of hung up on the meanness of it and it, the story felt like kind of like not enough to sustain an hour and 30 minute movie. But watching it again this time, I think a couple of things that I really appreciated more was first of all, Daniel Radcliffe's performance thinking like how actually difficult of a job as an actor it is to play that role and how he does such a good job of like kind of breathing life into a essentially like a weekend at Bernie's. He calls himself like human trash. Like yeah. He's just like something that used to be alive. And that's like, he's nothing now. Yeah. yeah. He also <laughs> reminded me of Chris Kattan and Monkey Bone. I thought about that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a similar physical performance. Right. Just kind and of it, flailing. It's really good. And like, also the music, I kind of was annoyed by it the first time I saw it. I didn't really care for it. Again, it's like, I have a problem with 
twee and it's very this is like an animal collective style musical almost it's got like chants yeah. and like arrhythmic vocalizations and like yeah i but i i dug it a lot more this time i think it added a nice like kind of backdrop to the movie and it's also like self-referential like there's a scene where they're mm-hmm. I, I think they're like making the bus to get or they're learning all of the things that daniel radcliffe's body can mm-hmm. do and the lyrics of the song are like all we ever needed was a montage you know i didn't catch that much in the theater like i w- caught yeah. that more at home because i had the uh subtitles yeah, turned yeah, on yeah. And there are a bunch of jokes like when they're popping popcorn, the uh, vocalizations start going pop, 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 yeah. pop popcorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure I caught some of those jokes in the theater, but like watching it with the captions, yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of it became more apparent like that it was kind of self-satirizing yeah, uh, itself absolutely. as it goes along. And also upon a second viewing too, their relationship, especially when he's dressing in drag essentially and like they become boyfriend, like it resonated a lot more with me. I thought it was a lot sweeter watching it this time because i think on first viewing you're so caught up in just the wackiness the wackiness and the zaniness of it that i kind of miss like the heart of the film but it did resonate with me more upon second viewing that kind of bothers me about how everything everywhere has been discussed too like i never want to hear the phrase hot dog fingers again or like raccoonie like the way that the most simple ideas that like are fun momentary gags have been like hyper fixated yeah. on it's like beating a dead horse it's just like the jokes aren't funny anymore because i've seen people referencing it over and over and over again for a full year now yeah but it, that movie has like so much deeper stuff going yeah. on about like the like mother-daughter conflicts and like the suicidal ideation which i think is very strong in this movie as well yeah they're playing a very dangerous game where their movies could be easily like napoleon dynamited where you get like disgusted with even hearing the vote for Pedro joke. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's something about what they're doing. That's like appealing to that crowd in a way that distracts from the deeper well of like emotions in their work. Yeah. I think they are, like you said, playing a day. It's on the line. And like, luckily they've been able to keep it together because Swiss army man could have been very bad given like the wrong actors or just like the tone. If you didn't nail it, it could be really annoying. But they nailed it, and they nailed it in everything everywhere, but we'll see where they they go from here. Yeah, and I think that's actually why I didn't see Swiss Army Man when it came out. And not that I had anything against it or was repelled by it, but all I knew about it was like Paul Dano finds a corpse on the beach, and it's Daniel Radcliffe, and he farts a lot. And not that I have a problem with that concept, but it it didn't really like pull me in. It just seemed like a joke. It could have been a cocaine bear. Right, yeah, exactly. But- after watching it, it is very earnest. And even the farting has purpose beyond just being like a funny gag. Like that was a part of what the movie was about to me and what I thought was special about it. But it's not like I didn't like it because it was just a funny fart movie. Yeah, I thought that there's a great like kind of monologue towards the end it ties in with the farting about like, yeah, you know, you, when you die, you turn into poop and then your poop goes in the ground and other people's poop right. meshes with your poop and we're all like connected. The idea that we're all like connected, that we're just going to be poop in the earth was like kind of a beautiful idea that, um, I don't know, makes me want to rip some farts right now. <laughs> yeah. so, like, but I won't. The most disgusting, gross parts of us are parts of us and part of the cycle of life. 
I did notice in the lyrics of one of the songs, they like say something like everything everywhere matters to everything. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. They're obviously pouring like all of their ideas on screen here, but maybe in a more limited scope than Mm -hmm. everything everywhere. But uh, it it definitely leads to that work. But uh, that interconnectedness with like all of humanity being a temporary communal thing is, is definitely like. It's earnest. It's the kind of idea you have when you do psychedelics in college for the first time, <laughs> you know, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a lot more emotional stuff than probably even I was giving it credit for at the time. Yeah. I just do. I do wonder where this like maximalist approach leads to like after everything everywhere. Can you really up the ante or do you have to kind of scale it back down? So I'm interested to see what they do next. I, don't, I never like fully give into that idea that like people do their smarter work when they like tone back, you know, like there are enough people out there making really like restrained dramas that I don't want to see their version of that. You know, like I I don't want to see them like fully give up. I do. I do want to see them push it until it breaks. I want to see it pushed until I am disgusted with it (laughs) because like, (laughs) I don't want them to become more anonymous filmmakers, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I, well, I guess my point was that, it does seem like there's a little bit of marketing put into in the sense of like the Swiss Army Man poster sells itself as like the meme that yeah. it is. And th- same thing with everything everywhere, like that trailer and the hot dog finger. It like the meme aspect of it is what's going to get people's attention. But where they're really good at is like the heart mm-hmm. and the earning, yeah. earnestness of the story. So like, I guess I would prefer like, lean a little less into the meme a little more (laughs) into like the heart of the story but they they do a great job i learn actually more from young filmmakers today than i do from some of the older filmmakers that made movies 80 90 60 years ago uh because some of the new filmmakers today are doing such audacious work um the daniels such amazing genius work on Everything, everywhere, all at once, and uh, and I'm learning from young filmmakers so much. Uh, but one of the things I'm learning is you got to have a good script. I've always said if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, and I really believe that. And so my advice is to, if you want to be a, a movie director, first of all, write. And if you don't feel that's your strong suit, meet somebody whose strong suit is storytelling and writing, and form a little limited partnership. Because because it's the stories, they're going to get an audience to pay attention to you, not the shots. Well, according to the Vegas odds, the next likely director to win below the Daniels is our guy, Steven Spielberg. Our guy, our guy. You heard of him? <laughs> Swamp Flicks is favorite. Steven Swamp Flicks. We did a, a top five Spielbergs episode one, once upon a time. Yeah. I don't know. We he's, like the guy. Yeah, I like the guy. He's, he's good at directing. And my pick was a film of his that I'd never seen from 2005. What? You had never seen this before? Never saw That's this. surprising. War of the Worlds. Yeah. I remember it coming out. I remember it doing very well. So this, yeah, it came out in 2005. I think it had a budget of like $130 million might be right. I think it made like over $600 million. Like it was a big box office hit. I mean, you got Steven Spielberg, you got Tom Cruise, you got Aliens. It kind of sells itself. Dakota Fanning. Dakota Fanning. (laughs) She's really good in this. Yeah, she is. She is. 
So, and you know, it's based on the classic H.G. Wells novel. Um, the film starts with this, I think, unnecessary Morgan Freeman voiceover <laughs> narration talking about how aliens have been watching us, you know. I like that a little bit, only in the uh, continuation of the Orson Welles the Orson radio yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. But we recently watched F for Fake, and um, I was watching some Orson Welles stuff from The Critic. I don't know if you remember that old show, but... Would John I just, love it? Yeah. I just like love Orson Welles so much. And I just wish that he was narrating <laughs> that like the, just the sound of his voice brings me joy. And then as soon like, I did not know Morgan Freeman did <laughs> the voices as soon as it started. I kind of roll my eyes a little bit, but yeah. I under, I understood it. So anyway, we're introduced to Ray played by Tom Cruise. He's like a dock worker. I guess he, like Tetris is like shipping containers. Standard grizzled working class right. brute. Yeah. He's, Cruise. he's good at what he does apparently because his like overseer wants him to work an extra shift. He's like, like we need somebody that can do 40 containers right. in an hour. Joe he's, can't do that. You he's know like that. union rights. I mean, <laughs> everywhere he goes in his like, I think Long Island neighborhood. Yeah. New Jersey. I, don't, I, didn't I think really it's in it. Brooklyn. Uh, sure. From what I was reading. It doesn't but matter. Everywhere it's New York. he goes, like he knows everybody. Everyone thinks he's the coolest, yeah. most talented, most yeah. beautiful boy. In he's the, the handyman. Yeah. And he's like, they make it very clear. He's not a great father. His ex-wife <laughs> drops off the kids, um, you know, Dakota Fanning and uh, I forget the other actor's name, but Justin Chatwin. Just, yeah, he's Ooh. Robbie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'll get into his character later, but he do, ex-wife drops the kids off. It's obvious that like, you know, they call him Ray. They don't even call him dad. They make it clear that like, he's a piece of shit father. He wasn't around for them. He doesn't have food in the house. They have to order takeout. He takes a nap. He gets in a fight with his son. Like they establish, and I guess this goes to kind of the Fablemans and what Spielberg has been focused on for a while, but like the divorce aspect is present in this movie as well. And then some weird shit starts happening with like this lightning storm and wind is moving towards the storm, not away like it should. Just really creepy vibes going on and then the invasion starts there's this lightning that has struck the ground like multiple times and all the power is out and ray is going through the neighborhood and everyone knows ray everyone loves ray and they're like ray what's going on and you know he goes to investigate and finally the reveal the aliens come out of the ground and they're these big metallic tripod monsters that shoot these laser beams and just turn people into dust and people are just running for their lives absolute chaos and from there like ray has to take his family they get the only working car and they kind of make detours trying to get away they go to like the mother's house and she's gone and there's a plane crash and there's a scene on a ferry but essentially it's like He's just trying to keep his family alive in the midst of this alien invasion. It's like set piece after set piece. After, after set, set piece, piece. Yeah. yeah. And really great set pieces. Yeah, they look amazing. It looks amazing. I thought the CGI, especially in the beginning, looked pretty good. It aged relatively well. It's aged better than most like Marvel movies that came out in the last five years, much less the last 20 years. Yeah. You know? like, a lot of care was put into the like physicality of it. Yeah. So what what I'll say about this movie that I found interesting again watching it for the first time is like 
putting it in the context of like the post 9-11 mindset. You can't help watch this and not think about 9-11. It is so all over this movie from images of like people covered in dust and soot to people literally just being evaporated to images of like clothes falling from the sky. There's a lot of news coverage and like Dakota Fanning keeps asking like, is it the terrorists? Is it the the terrorists? terrorists? Yeah. And they lean into it a little and just seeing images, like there's tons of extras in this movie, like hundreds of people running for their lives was truly terrifying. Like the first, I would say two thirds of this movie. So you have the set piece at the very beginning, which is very reminiscent of like nine 11. But then the scene at the mother's house where they come out and there's a plane that has crashed. Yeah. And the total devastation of the plane crash. And then the scene at the ferry where just like people all like claustrophobically like smushed together, just trying to like save their lives. I thought that section of the film was some of the most terrifying stuff that Spielberg has ever done. It's like he really did just want to make, like really capture the post 9-11 anxiety that everyone was feeling in this like monster alien movie that he's done before with, you know, E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But this was like way more terrifying and just scary and fucked up than I've really seen him do in his career. Well, he was on a real cruelty streak in the in the 2000s because he also did AI and um, Minority Report that decade. And those movies are both fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a way that he hasn't been since. Like he's really pulled right. back away from and that. And I, I think that is the Spielberg that I really like. Oh, I miss him so much. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> like, especially uh, Minority Report and AI are better films than this film for me. Yeah, I agree. Because um, like I said, the, the first two thirds are really some of the best shit he's ever done. Where the film kind of turned for me, there's like a specific moment (laughs) where the last act of the movie is they find this guy played by Tim Robbins who is going to take them in, but he's kind of like a survivalist nut job who kind of went crazy. And ultimately in a great scene, like Tom Cruise has to kill him because he's like, it's either you or my daughter. But anyway, as soon as we see Tim Robbins character for the first time, (laughs) he makes this like, Ah, I'm a crazy expression yeah. to the camera. I'm like, oh, Lord, we're going to have to hang out with this guy. Well, the thing is that Spielberg's also a cornball and always has been a cornball. Yeah. He's a cheesy guy. But so much what I was loving about it was so like raw and like just how tense and scary it was. And then we go into like this much more, you know, it's like the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park. It's like them being stalked very slowly in this confined space. With this, like, Tim Robbins character who I just found, like, it felt like he was in a different movie. He's overacting his ass off. (laughs) And I get that Steven Spielberg, like, loves the cornball shit, but that's where it started to lose me. And then I do feel like the film, which has the same ending as the book, but it's a really kind of uninteresting end to the story. So it, it eventually kind of, like, fell apart a little bit for me, but... Goddamn, the the first hour of this is like really, really, really good. I will say that I was 12 when I watched this for the first time. (laughs) And Tim Robbins was very scary to me. That's what I want to say. Like they use him to torment the child. And it reminds me of like the um, scenes where Elliot and E.T. are like in the hospital 
in E.T. and like mm-hmm. they're both on their deathbed on like oxygen support. Yeah. Like uh, it's really like childhood nightmare stuff. And Spielberg used to be really cruel to children in movies. Yeah. And like that's where I, that's where I think Tim Robbins fits in. Yeah. Here. But it was so funny watching it now <laughs> because I didn't and I didn't know who Tim Robbins was when I was a kid. It was just this scary guy. But seeing him in his like little white tank top with the one huge like crazy eye, I was like, Tim Robbins, what are you what are you doing here? <laughs> it was very funny. But I will say, as far as the acting goes, besides Tim Robbins for me at least, like Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise. He does bring his Tom Cruise-ness to this role. I mean, and Dakota Fanning is really good in this. Like she legit looks she looks shook. rattled. Yeah. Yeah. Um Another minor issue I have is like the Robbie character who like should be dead. Like he rushes into a war zone where it looks like just a bomb went off and he's gone for like an hour. And at the very end, he's just somehow alive in Boston. He made it I'm like, all right, like That's some more of that cornball schmaltz. Yeah. The corn, but I didn't like the it's crowd pleasing. Also like his character and Tim Robbins are both, pretty good 9-11 commentary because they're both like the two people who are like bonehead reacting to the violence with like oh i, I need to jump that. in and be violent now yeah. to like counteract or that. the like conspiratorial like you know it was an inside job right kind of deal yeah I, I didn't really think about that but i don't know overall for me like the beginning the initial attack and the terror and the allusions to like 9-11 throughout the film make it like one of the more fucked up Spielberg's I've seen and you know I I dug that aspect of it a lot I think it's his last great film I'm gonna put a caveat on this that I really liked Ready Player One I know a lot of people don't like that movie Mm. I think we could discuss that someday I think it's more cynical and like um, self satirical than people give it credit for what I like about that movie and this movie though is like he used to make fun genre movies like he used to make big scary action sci-fi blockbusters that were like really thoughtfully shot and really cruel and unnerving and like we're just exciting filmmaking and then you watch something like the fablemans and it's just like he's getting old man anybody could make that movie except it's about his life but it's just like a collection of anecdotes and like the thing you were singling out about tim robbins in this actually bothered me in the fablemans where like david lynch has a scene in that movie and judd hirsch has a scene in that movie people fucking love and like it's these big character moments for these like recognizable Hollywood faces. Yeah. And people have like gone ape shit for them. And I think they're both like the corniest, like most distracting nonsense that has nothing to do with <laughs> the rest of the movie and kind of bothers me. Mm. Uh, so it didn't bother me here because I feel like it had a thematic purpose. But in that movie, he really goes for it with those two basically cameos. Mm. And one of those is Oscar nominated, which is nuts to me. <laughs> it's very bad. I don't know. I just missed this version of Spielberg. Like I have Ready Player One is the only movie of his I've enjoyed since this one. It's like not interesting to me anymore. I, d- I guess just like you know, maturing, getting up there in years. He's maybe lost the stomach to do this kind of thing, but he does it so incredibly well. Yeah. Like especially like you were saying, the big set pieces and just does a great job working with CGI and just making something feel huge. Yeah. And there's some really disturbing scenes in this movie. And I I kind of remembered not caring for this movie particularly. And I think part of that is because we were, we were like an anti-Tom Cruise household for some <laughs> reason. But watching it again, like after that scene where their house is kind of destroyed, I noticed like 
there aren't that many bodies. I haven't seen any blood. I mean, obviously, these people were being dissipated into dust. So, you know, that explained that. But then there's that scene where Dakota Fanning is looking for a place to pee and she walks by the river and there's just she sees one corpse and then Mm. three and then just this mass of corpses. And then obviously later on when they're it's the same thing with the blood, they're sucking blood from people and spraying it in these like torrents and the red vines, which are also a part of the original book, like just spreading it's this in true invasion across the entire landscape it's really really unsettling yeah that aspect of it creeped me out the more i thought about it because basically they came here before humans and like put these things in the earth and then came back millions of years later and at first i was like well why wouldn't they just take the planet when there were no humans here and then when you realize like oh they were just waiting for us to like overpopulate so they could come back and take our blood. Like, damn, well, that's pretty, pretty fucked up. The more y'all are describing that, the more I'm thinking of Jordan Peele's Nope, which is a good movie that mm-hmm. was very Spielbergian on purpose. And like, mm-hmm. I was also thinking about it. There's like a scene, I think they're in these like cages. Little bread the, baskets. Yeah. The, yep. the things are like picking up off the ground. Like it's very similar to people getting sucked into the cryptid monster in Nope as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like Nope is an interesting movie because it does all this like surface level Spielberg stuff. And it's about a few different like metaphorical readings as well. And like this one, you could talk about the 9-11 stuff. You can see how Spielberg's like traumatic divorce childhood. I don't really want to downplay that too much, but fucking everybody's parents were divorced. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> uh, it really focuses on that. Like, but here it's like subtext and it, he's putting like a lot of personal stuff in it. There's a great shot where like Tom Cruise hurls a baseball at his kid's head in anger. Mm-hmm. And then we look at Tom Cruise through this reverse shot yeah. through the hole in the glass that he created. And he like sinks into the shame of what he just did. Like that is way more powerful to me than like a two hour movie about your parents divorced. Like yeah. that image has a lot more to say. I think I did write war of the divorces <laughs> yeah. and war of the father figures. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it did have a better kind of familial story than i remember well they i just love like how kind of shitty of a dad he is in the beginning and he his character has a great progression where he does become a father before our eyes and like that moment where his kids finally call him dad is emotionally impactful you know if your daughter's allergic to peanut butter you gotta know that you know that's pretty embarrassing (laughs) shameful right i was glad that i watched the fablemans for like one thing uh, which actually I think kind of just re- rebolsters what I was just saying. But like in the early news footage where they're like flipping the channels through the TV and like trying to figure out what's going on, there's a shot of the train wreck from the world's greatest show, which the first like 30 minutes of the Fablemans is about him going to see that movie and then recreating the train wreck at home as a kid. Now in this movie, he actually does recreate the train wreck in a new weird way. Yeah. Um, that I think might be more textually interesting than him explaining to us why it was important to him and like showing him doing mm-hmm. it at home and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm just more geared towards genre movies that have like upfront payoffs, but also have like a subtextual like payoff as well. That's just something I'm always going to be drawn to more than like dramas. Right. Exactly. But this kind of thing is not really what gets nominated for like the best movies of the year. Even though he's, he's visually directing it just as like hard as he does in the Fablemans. No, and it was very successful. Oh, it made a lot of money. Yeah. 
I guess uh, my point is sort of undercut by Tom Cruise's uh, Top Gun Maverick being one of the 10 nominated best picture films, but I don't even know if that don't know really how matters that, that much. I think that's more like a capitulation yeah. to like wider audiences. Hey, like The Oscars care right. about you too. Yeah. See this thing that you liked? Yeah. <laughs> it was good. I still haven't seen that movie, but I, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's fine. Top Gun Maverick? Yeah. You don't want to hear me talk about that. <laughs> we, we, we've discussed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we do want to talk about uh, the director of Tar, Todd Field. <gasps> we do. I keep calling him Todd Phillip in my head accidentally. So <laughs> if I was like, wow, he wrote the Joker too? And he didn't. <laughs> he did not. So we didn't really do specific picks per person, but this was the one that I was the most interested in because I haven't seen it, but I knew of this movie when I was a child and I was it was on my radar and I just never saw it so the directed and written by Todd Field it was co-written by the author of the novel this is based on so Todd Field actually doesn't really have a huge filmography I mean basically has three feature films and that's uh, his first film in the bedroom uh, Little Children and then Tar and in the bedroom was actually also nominated for best picture and it's very good. It is very. I good. I need to see that, it's especially really after good. watching this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a little slice of life, unsettled suburbia film. They kind of like like this exists in my head, close to American Beauty. Um, it's about this woman, Sarah Pierce, played by Kate Winslet, who has her master's in um, English literature. She almost got her PhD, but she is now a wife and mother, and she's unsatisfied in that role. Uh, She doesn't relate to like the suburban wives that go to the park with her. And she meets this this stay-at-home father named Brad Adamson. He is called the prom king by this like group of suburban (laughs) women. He's this like big hottie. I've never seen people drool over Patrick Wilson, like the hottest guy in the world. (laughs) I also, I personally did not find Patrick Wilson attractive in this movie, but I got, I don't know. He's, he totally has like prom king energy of this like high school darling that is now like an attractive adult man. But kind of peaked in high school. Right. So she uh, comes up to him kind of on a dare. These women bet her basically that she can't get his phone number. They actually share a kiss in the park, uh, which is very controversial. It forces all of the other women to flee. And they're both in these kind of unsatisfying marriages. Kate Winslet's husband is addicted to internet pornography. And Patrick Wilson's wife is a PBS documentarian who is really, she's the breadwinner and she's really ragging on him to pass the bar exam. So they start to meet at the public pool over the summer and eventually their relationship evolves into this tryst. And they're like, it's also kind of mediated by their children. Like, so they go over to each other's houses for play dates and like let them play together while they have sex, like in the attic and in the laundry room. And... That is kind of happening alongside the reintegration of a man who was put in jail for indecent exposure to minors. He's a pedophile. He's come back to the suburban community and like everybody is terrified of him. And there's this cop or ex-cop 
who shot a teenager had to retire. And he's kind of like forming this committee of concern and really like hounding this man who is like genuinely disturbing. So it's one of those films that follows these like lives of these particular characters and they kind of intersect in the climax of the film in like an emotionally cathartic way. I really, really liked Little Children. It was the only, the only thing that I knew about it when I was a kid was there's this like, there's this sex scene between Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson in the laundry room, which actually watching it as an adult is like a little sad. They're just kind of like desperately fucking and she's like, do you feel bad about this? And he's like, yeah, I feel really bad. I don't know. It's just yeah. guilty and kind of um, sad, but hot. But I think it was genuinely sympathetic and also really like all of these characters are flawed. I think Patrick Wilson especially is kind of like bumbling around. He gives this like kind of aimless jock energy, uh, but it was a really caring, sympathetic movie. I see some parallels with Tar in like following this very flawed person as their their life is kind of unraveling. But this reminded me more of in the bedroom of like these kind of contrived situations, these very particular characters serving almost like like literary functions and and tropes. This is a very literary narration track yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like a PBS documentary narration track. And there's actually a scene too where she's at a book club and they're talking about Madame Bovary and like like what each character represents. Like I got that same kind of feeling about the characters in this film. But I don't know. I've seen a lot of movies like that and I think this was this had really interesting characterization and for a film about like the insecurities of like upper middle class suburban life, this was a nuanced complex portrait. Yeah, like you brought up American Beauty, which is what I kept connecting in my brain, but this is like way better. Yeah. And it's also funnier. Like yeah. that's something we haven't touched on yet is like this movie is really funny. Yeah. It is funny. And when you're talking about like pedophiles at a pool and it sounds like it's this really dark thing. It it is like and it goes to some really dark places, but it's a really breezy like funny movie for a lot of its runtime. I thought like American Beauty is like the worst example of this like kind of suburban on Yeah, exactly. It's like kind of faux philosophical. This is like making fun of these people for having such simple existential crises. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a lot more of like Todd Solon's and um, Alexander Payne. So like election or happiness. Happiness. Yeah. A lot. And Jane yeah. Adams has a pretty similar arc in this that she has in happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's like, on the one hand, sympathizing with these people and also kind of being like, you're pathetic. Yeah, like, you know, when you're introduced to Kate Winslet, it's like she's studying, according to the narrator, she's studying these suburban women <laughs> as like an anthropological right. study as if she's not one of them. And she is. Right. Like, just because it's her perspective, she sees herself as like being above this like suburban committee. She yeah, like more has a, complex. Yeah. She has like a master's in literature. And but she doesn't like, know what's going on in those people's heads. There is one woman who is like truly awful, but yeah, the other she's, two, a, she's a Karen. We really don't know what the other ones are up to, you know? I liked this a lot more than Tar. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think the humor is pretty similar and maybe even the perspective similar, like especially with the uh, child molester character. There's something about yeah. Tar and this where it's like, well, what do you do 
with someone who has fucked up tremendously and like is a broken person what role can they function in society after that yeah and his like performance was really good in that like i kept going back and forth like oh he's a creep like that scene in the pool is pretty terrifying right he's like in scuba gear like looking at children underwater but then like him interacting with his mother like oh well maybe he's not he has some he's like mentally heart. ill. He's mentally right. ill. But then the scene, you know, where he's jerking off in the car with his date, you're like, oh, this guy's a creep. Like, but he kept like bringing humanity to this person who is a bad person. But I, that's a really tricky role to play. That's where I want to separate it from Tar. Is like that's a real scenario. Like the the suburban right. ennui, the child molester has to like reintegrate into society. These are like real things, and like. The Kate Blanchett character in Tar, what I hated about that movie is it's just so deeply phony to me. Like, it mm-hmm. just creates this, like, fake cancel culture scenario to, like, make these jokes in a context that I never agreed to the premise of the joke for. So, yeah. like, I got where the laugh lines were supposed to be, but, like, I never got on the level where I was like, oh, yeah, me and the movie are thinking the same thing at the same time, you know? Right. In this, I should be rooting for Tar, <laughs> I think. Like... It's kind of what I was saying about the Daniels. Like, I don't want the Daniels to become more like other filmmakers. And, like, this is the least distinct Todd Field movie of the two that I've seen. Like, Tar feels more idiosyncratic and personal to him. This has a lot of, like, corollaries to, like, 90s and 2000s movies about suburbia. So, like, I should appreciate the more personal to him choice. But I just think this one's funnier because I agreed to the premise before we started making jokes about it, you know? Yeah. Like, the target of the humor made more sense to me. The target. Target. (laughs) Yeah, there's this moment where, like, Patrick Wilson's wife, who's played by Jennifer Connelly, she's suspicious of his potential relationship with Kate Winslet's character, so she arranges this dinner party, and, I don't know, she's a PBS documentarian. She, like, picks up on what's going on. Yeah. And after the night is over, the narration says... Brad convinced himself that the dinner party had went swimmingly <laughs> and he he's brushing his teeth. And as soon as uh, the narrator says that he just gives this big toothy John big, grin. Smile, yeah. <laughs> There's also that like um, big heroic moment where he like wins the like touch yeah, football yeah, yeah. game at yeah. night and it's shot like NFL films, right. with, like the NFL but narrator nobody yeah. is in this. Th- no one cares. Right. And tar has stuff like that. Like, the character is this very stuffy, full of themselves, sophisticate, yeah. who looks down on other people. And like the movie is shot with this like faux sense of like luxury. Like it's shot like a Lexus commercial. Yeah. In a way that I found so phony and dumb. So I feel stuck between like what the movie actually is versus like how other people see it. I keep hearing people call it like a gorgeous work of art and like finely tuned and stuff like that. I was like, no, it was like corny and dumb. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe that the whole movie is shot with that sarcastic NFL films tone as that football scene is shot, because it's shot right. professionally, but it's shot like in this like, I mean, corny perspective. That is sort of... I, I I like Tar more than you did. It's not, I didn't love it, but that sheen, that Lexus sheen you're talking about, it worked for me in that... Yeah, the idea that someone is presenting as this sophisticated artist that I'm the greatest and deep down you're just like a piece of shit and you exploit people. And so it's the veneer of prestige when really you're broken. But I think it's being treated seriously 
by yeah. most people. Like the fact that he is nominated for best director, I don't think is like, oh, he did such a good job satirizing luxury. I think it's like, yeah. oh, he made immaculate visual work. But I do feel like I do think about that movie a lot in regards to like the ending because like the end is so weird. Hate it. It's one of the weirdest <laughs> ending, you know, where she goes to conduct like an anime convention or whatever. I was like, huh. It just gave me pause. I'm like, I don't really know if I know what the point of that is, but it is thought provoking and it does feel a little tricksterish. Like, hey, this is sort of like a joke. She's a joke now. She was always a joke. But I don't yeah, like. I don't. The, I don't like. I'm conflicted the, about it. That that is like a joke. I don't know. Maybe I just the, the like debate anime. Is like <laughs> it's either that that is her downfall and like cosmic punishment for treating people poorly Mm -hmm. is that she has to like do base level unprofessional work for like a video game anime thing. Yeah. Right. In an Asian country. Right. And it's like, so is that the movie's perspective that it that that's a step down artistically, or is that the character's perspective? And that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, I don't want to have to think about that because the premise is phony and like this thing doesn't exist. You made this up. Why am I being dragged into this like bullshit debate? Yeah. That's what bothers me. The Juilliard scene is similar. Like that cultural representation debate she has with like the non-binary student in her class is such phony bullshit that like I can't relate to either side of it. And I think what you're supposed to do is both know that she's being an asshole and take some amusement in the fact that she's saying these like true things that are not politically correct to say. I mean, I actually really liked that scene. Fuck that scene. It does nothing. I liked it for exactly where, I mean, that's how I took it. It's like, he has a point. She has a point. No. (laughs) Yeah. She has a point. No, I I like that scene a lot. Actually. That's where I bailed on the movie mentally. And then there were like (laughs) two hours left after that. Its perspective is so muddled. It plays both sides at all time. And the scenario is so fake that like, I just didn't even know what I was doing there by the end. And by the punchline, I was just like really lost as to what its perspective was. If it was just fucking with me for no reason whatsoever, which I think is the worst possible reading of it. And I've been more and more resentful of it the further I get away from it, not like further appreciative until I watch this. Well, and I think this is a very what, good movie. That's yeah. what I was going to say is like this movie actually made me rethink my view on Tar. Not that like I think it's a great movie because I don't, but it made me appreciate it a bit more and like maybe I should trust him more as a director because I get what you're saying. It is muddled in Tar. And this it's very clear. Right. What's trying to be said and what his viewpoint is, and he articulates it beautifully. Yeah, Tar's a way messier. I, I get your point. Well, I think maybe so. He, in the bedroom was a straightforward drama, and that's the way it was. It was treated very seriously because it is serious, and it was clear in Little Children that you were supposed to be kind of laughing at these characters. So if he's able to make it clear, then if it's ambiguous maybe it wasn't meant to be puckish, you know, because if he wanted it to be clear, like this is a Lexus commercial for a woman named Linda, you know, this is the Lydia-ification of a person named Linda who like grew up in whatever small town, like that would have been clearer. Yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting three films where like in the bedroom, clear drama, this film, very clear satire, 
you see what it's doing. And then Tar is kind of a like, which one? What are we doing here? Those three films together is like an interesting triptych. Yeah. As far as like director's intentions. I think the smart thing you're supposed to say is that the more ambiguous work is the more interesting and intellectually satisfying. Well, work. I like ambiguous. I would tend to agree with that. But again, I didn't like tar. I, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so, how I feel about it. It's like, I know that is the smart person thing to say, but I feel this way about another director we'll get to later. But like the less ambiguous the work is in this case, the funnier and sharper and more incisive right, it feels. Exactly. And I get where you're coming from and you're landing the punches. Yeah. Like ambiguity can be a breeding ground for like, discussion you know and like different perspectives but it can also be like an opportunity to hedge your bets basically and that's when i think it's not interesting like if if you actually have something that you want to communicate then communicate it you know that internet thing about like making up a person and then getting mad at it right that's how i feel about tar it's like you made this up it's not real right what are we throwing punches at like if you actually want to have a satirical target. There's plenty of real world cancer culture stuff you could dig into in an interesting way. Yeah. I don't think that movie does it. And I'm going to keep up this uh, <laughs> fervor for the next movie on oh the boy. list. Oh, which right. is directed by Martin McDonough, who is nominated for Banshees of Anna Sheeran. Mm-hmm. Right. And the same two actors, uh, Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson, also starred in his 2008 film In Bruges which was the first McDonough I ever saw. So quick plot synopsis, get that out the way. It's pretty straightforward plot. It's these two hitmen who, after a job went wrong, are told to hide out in Bruges and await further instructions. And Brendan Gleeson kind of plays the older, wiser hitman to Colin Farrell's really like childish, offensive asshole. And he doesn't, like Bruges, he doesn't get the, you know, Bruges is this very old, I think they say it's the oldest medieval town in, in Belgium. Belgium. So all these like cobblestone streets and ancient, you know, buildings from 1100 and and they're going around sightseeing and Colin Farrell hates it. He's like, this fucking sucks. Why would anybody ever want to come to Bruges? And the first part of the film is sort of just kind of hanging out. It really uses the architecture of Bruges and kind of showing you the city and they're meeting the locals and just sort of, you know, we learned that Colin Farrell's character accidentally killed a boy on this hit gone wrong. And he's dealing with feelings of guilt and shame. Was it his first job? It was his first yeah. job. He said, yeah, Worked out pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty bad. <laughs> bad. There, and there's a lot of like Catholicism in this too. The ideas of guilt and sin. And, and then Brendan Gleeson gets, instructions from his boss played by Ralph Fiennes that they were sent to Bruges so that he could kill Colin Farrell because the job went wrong and he needs to be punished. And Brendan Gleeson kind of has this moment of clarity where it's like, no, this kid still has another chance. I can't do it. And this sets up a final showdown where Ralph Fiennes comes to Bruges to basically like duel it out, out of like, you know, very respectfully and out of honor, like we just need to settle this score. So anyway, so I like Martin McDonough. I don't, I don't know how Brandon. I, I don't think you're a fan of his. No, I fucking hated Three Billboards. I know you hated Three Billboards. I really liked Banshees of Inisherin, though. Right. I think it's funny. So Banshees of Inisherin for me is far and away his best 
I agree with that. Yeah. Rewatching this film, it was tough for me because like I've seen it multiple times. I think I first saw it a little after high school, like when it came out. And then I actually took a trip to Europe and I went to Bruges as one of my stops. And it's a beautiful city. I saw a lot of the like artwork, the Haramis Bosch painting that they talk about in this movie. I saw that. That's cool. And so I like, I had a connection, like this film kind of introduced me to Bruges. And then I went there and saw like, and then all the jokes about how much Bruges is a piece of shit town were, it was funny to me because it's not, it's a beautiful medieval castle of a town. So it kind of had like a special place in my heart. And then rewatching it again, some of the stuff has not aged well. And I think a lot of it has to do with this like post Tarantino and Martin McDonough is a fan of Tarantino. Oh, you can tell. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> and it is offensive. It's leaning. There's jokes about fat people, about the Vietnamese, about midgets, about retards. I mean, it goes. Gay people. Gay people. And do I think that has aged well? No, it has not. It's that South Park era of like, if everyone's offended, no one's offended kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And it's like ironic racism. It, it's an, I consider this like kind of an amateurish like he's a much better writer than I think this shows. Then what's the proof of that? That stuff, the like crassness of it feels very like early 2000s. But what's the good writing then? What am I oh, missing? Uh, I think the Ralph Fiennes stuff still works. The scenes with him and Brendan Gleeson where they're just sitting down and it is kind of that ironic, like, well, you know, we got to kill each other, you know, that, and you've seen that in other movies, but Ralph Fiennes is, character in here I find incredibly funny. Okay, the thing that I think separates is from those Tarantino knockoffs. And you saw so many of those kind of movies come out in the late 90s, early 2000s. It has like a sincerity to it. And like, I actually feel like genuine human emotion between like the Brendan Gleeson character and Colin Farrell. And I think there are moments where it is incredibly funny still. The right, yeah, the writing is a little hit or miss as far as with the crass stuff that he seems to have just thrown in to get a cheap laugh or whatever. But I think it's really beautifully shot. Bruges is beautiful. There are moments of hilarity and it has an undercurrent of human emotion that I think makes it stand out still from some of those Tarantino ripoffs. And I think Banshees of Inishirin takes kind of what he was doing here and I might have to revisit three billboards, but that's definitely his most mature, funniest, important work. But this is like him getting there essentially. So yeah. When like, you know, Barry Kagan's character, it's revealed that like his father rapes him in Banshees. That's like really crass in the same way that a lot of the events of this movie are, but like, it's just deeply kind of sad and like yeah. dealt with on like a real emotional yeah, level. Yeah, it's not treated like a joke. Yeah. I feel like if he had made that same character arc in this film, it would have been like a joke. Yeah. But, you know, some of the crass stuff still, I think a lot of it has to do with Colin Farrell. He is extremely likable to me. And even in this role, like where he is playing a shithead, it still kind of made me laugh. But some other stuff that I would have found funny when I was 19 years old, I didn't really find funny anymore. But I still think he's a very good writer. And 
its tone is similar to what he he's still doing, but I I still liked it. I didn't like it nearly as much as the first time I saw it, but I I still think it's like it's a funny little noir buddy film. I don't know. This was a movie that like the guys that I hung out with in high school, like this was the cream of the crop. It was like Pulp Fiction in Bruges, you know, and I, the first time I watched it, I really liked it. And I had a very, <laughs> a very similar experience. Like, I feel like some of the fun interpersonal dialogue is that is all over the place in Banshees is here. And then the moment I'm on board with it, something is put in there that I'm like, Ugh, like, I can't really connect yeah. with. I think that the last half an hour, like as soon as Ralph Fiennes is introduced, I think the movie gets a lot better. And like, I think maybe, not that this was like really emotionally evocative or anything, but when Ralph Fiennes is coming to the hotel to kill Colin Farrell's character and this hotel owner is standing in between him like, I'm not going to let you in. It's like this negotiation between everybody and then they're they go into this like totally immature, like boyish bet. Like, okay, well, I'm going to try to jump out the window and then you can run out and shoot me. And then that's how we're going to hand. It's, it's like they're in fifth grade and the hotel owner is like, can't you just both go home? And I think that is the moment where the, f- the film is actually like saying something about this like really immature, violent mode of, of, interaction and negotiation between men and neither of them are able to like let it go but banshees was my number one film of last year and i think those little moments that kind of were interspersed throughout this film were condensed and then like expanded and the heart was expanded and that is like pure greatness to me and he's shed all the tarantino stuff yeah. which i think is really what holds him back like yeah the video store references to like time bandits and like other pre-existing pop culture mm-hmm. about all the dwarves that kill themselves. Oh my God. And yeah. then the like criminals between jobs, like hanging out and shooting the breeze is like Tarantino one Oh one stuff to me. The title this most reminded me of was boondock saints. Mm-hmm. And I'm honestly shocked. This movie isn't seen as much of a, like a wide cultural embarrassment that boondock saints is now i think people should look at this being like this is so i can't believe we were into this this is so much better than boondock saints they're the same movie to me they're not this sucks (laughs) (laughs) nothing positive to say about this movie really i don't even think in banshees a movie i like i don't think it's interestingly shot i think it's like got expensive cameras they point them in beautiful vistas but this movie and that movie are pretty flatly designed yeah and the ambiance of the location is doing most of the visual oh, work. Oh, sure. I mean, he's a writer first and He's foremost. a playwright, yeah. But the problem is that the writing is really obnoxious and try-hard and not funny in a movie that's supposed to be a comedy. And in Banshees, I laughed a lot. Here, I didn't laugh once the entire runtime. I was really? just sitting there in stone silence. Wow. I just and really totally hated this. Did. Yeah. <laughs> I also watched it alone in my 30s and not like with a bunch of buddies over beer right. in my 20s. So maybe I missed something, but... Yeah. No, I I just feel like as far as the writing goes, like you know that the repetition thing that he is kind of known for is here, and like I don't know, there were like a lot of funny. The fact that you say you didn't laugh once in this whole 
movies. It reminds like, me of the same thing as Tar, where like what it does is it creates this like fictional person that we're all supposed to agree is a bad dude. Like he's got a, he's got a terrible viewpoint in the world. He's a piece of shit. So then he's allowed to say things that are offensive that we are now allowed to laugh at because we've already agreed that he's a bad person. It's the Eric Cartman thing. We're like. He makes fun of American tourists for being fat asses who can't crawl up the tower steps. Yeah, I did. At... I didn't like that. Yeah, it stuff. sucks. Yeah, and the whole movie's like that. The whole movie is like his character who is crass and immature. I really think the heart of the film is with Brendan Gleeson, and he is a man like in a, kind of the twilight of his years who sees a guy who's fucking up, who's young, doesn't know shit, can't appreciate this great city that he's in, can't appreciate his youth. And decides to like give him a second chance. Like he can again to that Catholicism, like he is sinned, but he can be redeemed. And there's like honor in that like and that's why I like the Ralph Fiennes character too, because he is like a man of honor, but he's also a piece of shit. Um Yeah. So I will say I I think we watched this together today. Mm-hmm. We also were not laughing for the first like half an hour. Basically, where the bulk of like Colin Farrell's yeah, I didn't jokes. laugh at that stuff. Yeah. That's the stuff I'm saying that hasn't aged right. well. But once the reveal that like he has to kill him, then the movie has more like weight dramatically yeah. for me. And then, like you said, the last half hour with the introduction of Ralph Fiennes' character, who I think is legitimately hilarious yeah. in this like carries the movie through to its end. And the first scene I think that actually I connected with is the scene where Ralph Fiennes calls Brendan Gleeson. That's a great scene of, that's a good example of like where I think there's humor in this. Yeah, like like Ralph Fiennes is asking how everybody likes Bruges and Brendan Gleeson's character is like, oh, well, he... He didn't care for it. And you have no context for why he's asking this. Like, oh, yeah, he didn't really care for it at first. And Ralph Fiennes is, like, extremely insulted. Like, what? what is there not to like? It's a fairy tale place. What? And then Brendan Gleeson starts kind of, like, lying to this guy to get Colin Farrell's character in his good grace. Is like, oh, no, it's just... Like, there's this, like, modern, you know, bridge or whatever. But once he got into the town, he loved it. He said it was like a dream. And then he's like, oh, okay, great. And then it's revealed that Brendan Gleeson has to kill Colin Farrell. And the reason Ralph Fiennes sent them to Bruges was so Colin Farrell would be able to experience this wonderful place that he actually hates. And then that line is used again, like, you know, I, even though I know it's reality, it feels like a dream. But Brendan Gleeson is saying it realizing that he has to kill this guy like that i thought was that's like legitimately good writing and i also think the scene between brendan gleason and ralph Fiennes again with the cunt kids where he's basically like look you're an asshole you're old enough you're only going to become more of an asshole you're going to have asshole kids but like colin farrell like his character still has a chance to like I, i i thought that was good writing too like to dismiss the entire film and say that there's not nuggets of like good writing and not funny things in here. I, I is just being like kind of submissive uh, or dismissive, dismissive of it. But yeah. I'm dismissing it because it's basically like basic, like stage play style writing yeah. applied to a Tarantino premise. And I don't think that's that interesting. It's like boondock saints plus waiting for Godot, which like, <laughs> 
does make it more interesting yeah. than Boondock Saints, I mean, but like not great. by it's much. Way, it's way better written than Boondock Saints. That movie is terrible. I think they're about on par, but okay, maybe there are nuggets of good writing in here, and maybe it's good that he got praised for it, because then later he did go on to write a movie I found very funny. Yeah. So like... I'm glad he was encouraged. I just don't think I would have been the one to be there for him at the time. Yeah. I do think I remember a little a little bit about his plays because I read them for a class in college and he was this might be totally wrong, so I apologize to anyone that knows more about Irish literature than I do, but like part of embracing Tarantino was like trying to push Irish plays and media into like a more extreme place like he liked the freedom that like American film had so I think like when your intention is just to push something in a direction without a lot of thought it can become it's like juvenile even if it's useful at the time so I I think it was like in some ways maybe just something he had to get out of his system and after seeing The Banshees of Inishiran, I like this movie so much less than I did the first time I watched it, knowing what he could and would eventually make. But I think that The Banshees of Inishiran is like legitimately heartfelt and moving. I mean, there's a reason why we've done almost 200 episodes of the show, which, first of all, that's fucking crazy. Wow. But like, we've never talked about a Tarantino movie like yeah. as a topic. And I think that's because it was such an oversaturated market in the indie film sphere after he made it big with Pulp Fiction, where everyone was making those types of movies for so long. And I can almost guarantee that by 2008, I was already sick of that. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking about where I was in my life at that time, I, I don't think I would have accepted this in my heart the way I would have if it came out in the early 2000s. Like, even this feels kind of late for that post-Tarantino wave. I, I d- I, again, the last thing I'll say, I do think it has more substance than a lot of the Boondock Saints and Seven Psychopaths and whatever, whatever Michael Madsen movie you're thinking, right? Of right now. <laughs> all, all the knockoffs. Like I think it has more substance than those, but still a flawed film. Tell that to my eighth grade boyfriend, James. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm gonna go through a little director's scorecard here before we wrap up, which is like, who was nominated for their best work to date? The Daniels. I think Everything Everywhere is an improvement over Swiss Army Man, even if just like marginally. I, I like mm-hmm. I like it better. Spielberg. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the Fablemans is their favorite Spielberg movie. And if they are, right. I can't relate to them. <laughs> it might be Spielberg's favorite Spielberg. That's yeah. accurate. His, his acceptance speech did get me like kind of teary eyed. Mm-hmm. Like it's the film he wants to make. That makes me want to watch it. And Good for grandpa. And appreciate I guess. it. Yeah. <laughs> He's getting old, man. Okay. Come on. Todd Fields. I could see anyone arguing that Tar is their favorite. So I'll put that one down as a maybe. Yeah, but he's done his best work so far. I enjoyed uh, Little Children more than I enjoyed Tar. I, I agree with that. I really like Little. Actually, yeah. Little great. Children of all the movies we watched, I think was my favorite. I want to agree off the top of my head, but <laughs> but definitely liked it more than Tar. So I would put that as a Tar is not his best. In Bruges, we all just said he's done better work since. I think yes. Banshees might be his best. Work I think Banshees is his, his best like for sure. masterpiece. Okay. Yeah, I want to also say that Ruben Ostland. Uh, for his Triangle of Sadness nomination, was also nominated for his best work mm-hmm. to date. And I want to say that because I've only seen his post-breakout movies. Um, he's directed three films that are, I think, widely seen, which are Force Majeure, 
which you talked about on the podcast. And really enjoyed. Really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he did a movie called The Square in 2017, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes. Very good. Mm-hmm. And then Triangle of Sadness. And I think what I've noticed in that trajectory is that his art world cred is going down. <laughs> like Force Majeure is supposed to be his like smartest, most um, you know, well-respected work. Yeah. While the entertainment value for me is going up and up. <laughs> he is started off with this like discomforting comedy in Force Majeure about like the weaknesses of like human selfishness. And then gotten more and more towards like populist comedic entertainment as his movies have gone along. And I think the square is like a middle ground between where he started with force majeure and where he is now. Um, I'm saying started. I don't think anyone here has seen his movies before force majeure, right? He made some earlier work that I, I no, but they no. are on criterion. Yeah. He has a channel. collection. It's like the, it has a name like the discomfort collection, but it's getting a, a very similar, like, like social discomfort. And I think that's still present in his work, but I think he's just gotten more and more like basically making like Farley Brothers style comedies. <laughs> like there's a lot of diarrhea and puke humor in Triangle of Sadness that the three of us thought was very funny when yeah. we saw it in the theater, like did a lot of laughing. Um, and I think the square is doing a lot of that too. Like there's a lot of like kind of slapstick humor mixed in with like the sort of like art world pretension. And yeah, I am into the trajectory of his work. I'm getting more and more into him the further he gets away from like prestige. Mm-hmm. I, I liked this movie, The Square, a lot more than the first time. Oh, I really? It. Yes. It was way funnier. I don't know. Something didn't click for me. Maybe seeing Triangle of Sadness and having that in the back of my head helped, but I think me and Hannah both really like The Square more yeah. than when we first watched it. This is my first time viewing it, and I thought it was very funny. Yeah. Uh, it's about a, I believe, Swedish museum curator who is distracted in his life because his wallet was stolen, and he goes on a personal like vigilante tirade to get his wallet back, and uh, becomes more and more involved in the lives of the poor people who um, both stole his wallet and the ones he's suspicious of who have nothing to do with it. Um, and a lot of it is about the sort of like street level buskers um, outside of the wealthy art world that he lives in. Mm-hmm. Like he passes a lot of people in the street are like asking for a spare change and like for him to buy them lunch and stuff like that. Um, and he gets more involved in their lives as he tries to get his uh, wallet and phone back. In the meantime, he's neglecting his work. Uh, <laughs> to disastrous effect. Yes. Uh, there's a big PR fiasco at the museum because <laughs> he like okays an ad. He did not pay attention to at all. <laughs> hilarious. In which one of those, Street beggars are blown up. Blown to smithereens <laughs> in the square. Yeah, in the art exhibit that has nothing to do with the ad. Like the, the art exhibit is about equality and like people being leveled, like uh, you know, wealth and class and everything else being like sort of erased so that we can interact with each other as human beings. Um instead, there's the sensationalist <laughs> spot that becomes like a viral video to his professional peril. Um yeah, I just thought this movie was very funny. I laughed a lot at all the art world satire Mm -hmm. all of the like pretentious like duchamp level like if we put a toilet in a museum then it's considered art and we have to like deal with it on that level there's an exhibit called mirrors and piles of gravel and that's exactly what it is (laughs) (laughs) actually one piece does work for me um which was the chairs Mm -hmm. oh that scene is so yeah that subplot with uh elizabeth moss yeah she's so great god and the random bonobo monkey (laughs) just hanging out in the apartment and that's just like 
well, almost like surreal yeah. slapstick humor to me. The fact that her roommate is a monkey and no one really comments her on that. Three <laughs> se- the three scenes with Elizabeth Moss in this movie work for me. Like the condom scene is hilarious. The scene in front of the chair yeah. sculpture. I think that sculpture actually works as like an art piece. Like it's it's this tower of chairs that shakes but never falls over. And there is a sound that plays in the gallery of the chairs crashing. Yeah. But every time that sound happens, we're looking at someone without the chairs in the background. So you keep feeling like it's crashed. Right. But you never get that release. And instead it just builds more and more tension as he's having an argument with the journalist played by Elizabeth Moss. who had like a one night stand with. Yeah. And the tension in that art piece is actually like really effective. Also have to mention the tension in the big performance art piece at the, that is a phenomenal scene that is really scary and unnerving yeah there's like a performance artist who pretends to be this like angry primate Mm -hmm. who performs quote-unquote by just like physically terrorizing a room full of museum donors and they all have the collective power to stop him at any moment and they just let it go on out of like intimidation and he like bullies people bullies people he almost sexually assaults someone it's really bad by her hair and apparently that was inspired by a real life um, art exhibit. That oh, happened. really? Yeah, and to me, um, is monstrous, unconscionable behavior, and like, was right to be satirized here. Like, yeah. fuck that guy. Yeah, uh, I don't know. The target is easy. I would say the same thing about Triangle of Sadness. Like, it's easy to make fun of rich, pretentious people, but yeah. it's still got enough of a cathartic release where the jokes are funny enough that it's worth the effort. I, I do think this one is a little more targeted in who it's going after. It is about modern art in general but i think it's also like targeted modern art that's like trying to solve social issues and it really does a great job of like honing in on that satire whereas triangle of sadness is kind of a broad like rich people suck and we can all agree that they suck and let's watch them vomit and shit on themselves so it seems a little more targeted in this one i think that's kind of why i liked it more on second viewing like you like it more than triangle of sadness or um does, I think it, I, does that matter? <laughs> it, I don't think it matters, yeah. but I'm on the... Fa- I think so. Okay. Like, I don't know. It, Triangle of Sadness has a like really great kind of centerpiece of the film. As a whole, this one, the jokes hit me. It was more consistent with its humor. Like, I was constantly, like, chuckling or laughing throughout. But it's kind of a toss-up. What I want to say is that in Force Majeure and in The Square there's still room for like audience indictment. Like in force majeure, this guy like fails to protect his family the way a man should uh, Mm. in a moment of crisis. And I feel like the audience is supposed to be like, well, what would I do in that scenario? Mm -hmm. And in this one, I mean, we all live in a city, so we interact with people asking for change a lot, Um, especially around Mardi Gras just now. Like there's like, tons and tons of like extra people in the city. So there were extra homeless people and they were extra asking for like, handovers of cash and like it's hard to watch that on screen and not feel indicted yourself like do i do enough um, right. philanthropist work is that even my place is that something the ultra wealthy should be doing in my stead um by the time you get a triangle of sadness unless you're like an ultra wealthy like right. yacht it's dweller, not indicting yeah, you anymore right. yeah i really liked how the square kind of grappled with different level it's like trust between people what we owe to people what our reaction is to people that we help that aren't grateful in the way we want them to be like christian is the curator and 
he is charitable to some of the people that he meets around the city but there's this woman for instance that wants asks him for money and he says well i don't have cash on me because his wallet was stolen but i can get you something to eat and she's like chicken ciabatta you know and then she's like no onions so she's a little like she's begging but she's also a little demanding in what she wants and then he's like put off by that like you can pick the onions off yourself and it would have taken him no extra effort just to say no onions onions. while making the order right exactly and then there are people in the beginning there's this group of people that like run up to him and this other man saying oh this man is gonna kill me and they like ward this guy off and then he realizes like oh they you know they pickpocketed me so it's like and the exhibits that they have around the square are also about trust and what we owe to other people but there's this central conflict that he has with this boy um who got this note he basically he's trying to figure out who stole his phone and his wallet so he goes to this apartment building and such <laughs> he a just, shit plan yeah he puts like, this threat in every single door saying i know that you took my stuff and if you don't give it back i'm gonna come for you basically so this little boy his family gets this note so they think he stole these things and he finds christian and he says i'm not a thief you called me a thief my family thinks i'm a thief come and apologize and that's kind of like to me one of the clearest instances of you you do owe this person something like you have actively harmed them and he just kind of refuses to do it like he doesn't really want to deal with it it's this and i think it's also because it's not an act of charity it's like admitting wrongdoing that you've done to someone else and that escalates in a way that eventually, like, he he can no longer apologize for it, even if he tries to. Like, I don't know, I just really liked that it was looking at all of these different ideas of, of charity and harm in an interesting way to me. I did think it was telling, too, that, like, okay, his wallet and his phone got stolen, but he's a curator of a mu- right. He could replace that in an instant. He doesn't even want the money. He, like, gives the money away to... A homeless person like immediately. Right. And that's what I was going to say. Like the only time you see him actually give money to a homeless person is after he has the thrill of like, I got my wallet back. It's like, now I'm going to feel good about myself. And like getting at that idea that like, you know, the reason a lot of people give to the homeless is to feel good about themselves. And that's what he was like doing in that. So like, like you were saying, like, even when we're being charitable, why are we doing it? And for what? And then you know, that into like the art world, like who are they to make any statement about social justice when it's the ultra wealthy, you know, lots of like interesting layers of commentary. And the resolution with the boy's family is him letting the situation escalate to the point where he may have even like really might have killed this kid. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. And he doesn't get to feel good about it. No. Like he yep. tries to let himself off the hook. Like once he realizes how bad he let it get, he tries to alleviate the guilt by finally doing the things he should have done in the first place. Right. And the movie does not allow him to feel No, the good kids about like it. moved away yeah. and you're left with this kind of empty the, the family has moved. And he finds the phone number of this kid, which he threw away. And even his apology, he he records this apology and sends it to the kid's phone and it starts off as like i did this thing i shouldn't have done it even then he's only apologizing for one thing that he's done and at this point it's escalated far beyond yeah 
but then he goes further to like turn it into this socio-political commentary of like you know there are larger systems at play and ultimately it's like about my distrust for the people that live in your apartment building but isn't that kind of like a socially ingrained thing and these systems need to work and and then it's like you're totally distilling the actual thing that you have done to this person that you need to apologize for. Yeah. I also like, you know, in that moment, he's like turning it into like a more esoteric, like Mm -hmm. galaxy brain moment, like a museum curator. Right. (laughs) I also like that scene where he watches his daughters do this like gymnastic dance routine. And it's also in a square Mm -hmm. exactly like the art project is. And, like, all of the things that the art project is supposed to be about are actually, like, pulled off in that moment where, like, all these girls actually do trust each other and are, like, doing these, like, stunts oh, in yeah. each other's hands. And it's actually genuinely entertaining for the people watching it. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, this, like, communal joy moment where you don't really see that much else in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie, like, really does undercut his entire profession in, like, a yeah. smart <laughs> way. I did. The, and I, I love, too, this happens in, like, multiple scenes, but... When people are giving very like self-important speeches and they're interrupted by either like cell phones going off or there's a great scene where one of the artists, the gravel guy, yeah, is talking about his work and there's a guy with Tourette's just shouting the worst and seeing the like art world and these people trying to like, there's some that are like, well, he has a condition, like we can't kick him out. Meanwhile, he's calling, like, show your tits, cocksucker. And, like, that discomfort of, like, the art world being very stuffy and self-important and someone is just throwing the worst insults and they're having to, like, keep their manners about them. I, the The stuff like that I found very funny. Well, and... Another part of that interview that I like is that they're having they're having this very intellectual conversation about like, oh, and w- I want to take everyday objects and put them in a, a museum context. And then what is the physical space in your brain that, you know, and then the the guy with Tourette's is saying like garbage, go home. It's this very <laughs> like visceral reaction. And and it I mean, it, it feels kind of honest too. like this is kind of garbage. Yeah. You know, and a way that this like hi- kind of highfalutin discourse is not really accessible or honest. S- same thing with that scene with the chef where he's like trying to tell them about the menu and they're all like rushing. They to don't just care. Go yeah. to the buffet. <laughs> yeah. He's like, stop. He yells at him. Yeah. And then he rattles off like one more, you know, thing on the menu. He's like, okay, you can go now. Well, everything is supposed to be these like very controlled intellectual exercises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they're all undercut by like intrusions of humanity that like create chaos right. in those situations. And the exhibit is supposed to be about humanity. And I think that that's like the most interesting contrast to me when you're trying to make socially engaged art where like everything is kind of an abstract statement about trust and people. And then you aren't paying attention to like the building blocks of those actual moments, which is interact like uncomfortable interactions with people or like moments where you don't know what you're supposed to do uh i liked it i do want to stand up a little bit for triangle sadness like structurally in a way that like it's a triptych with these three different Mm -hmm. movements to it it starts with this young couple arguing about a check just bickering over like the smallest like social slight um that i think is foretold in the square 
when uh, the curator is arguing with his employee about who's going to dish out the mm-hmm. letters. <laughs> like, they bicker about that for a long time. Uh, and then the middle section is the rich people sliding around in their own puke and shit on the boat. Mm-hmm. And then the third section is this um, stranded on a desert island, Swiss army man style, like survivalist sequence that like upends the social structure of wealth. Yeah. I really like that structure in that movie. And like, it gives me three different like brain spaces to think about the like overarching idea. The square is much more episodic. It's ambling. Like, yeah, I felt the length a little more, I guess is where I was getting. Like it just yeah. kind of like didn't have a momentum to it. It just kind of yeah. like gradually unwound. And I, I think that is why I initially didn't care for it that much, but kind of watching it again, I think, I think it was the way we watched it too. Like we kind of every like 30 minutes or so, we would just pause to either go to the bathroom or get a snack and come back to it. And it worked really well like that. Cause it is just like little mini episodes throughout that are like hilarious and, but not really an overarching plot. And it, I don't know, it just sort of worked for me more this go around. Yeah, I think going into it cold, not knowing where it's going, it's a little more difficult. It is like two and a half hours long, but a second time knowing kind of what the beats are and being able to understand everything that came before, you know, I, I think that it it was a little easier. Um, but yeah, I think Triangle of Sadness is a little like, tighter in its structure definitely and it, the jokes are like more upfront. i think <laughs> like i like the populist streak in him that just makes that wants to make people laugh yeah and this movie has that too i i like this one slightly more than force majeure because it is funnier and i think oh yeah i yeah. think his like humor is his best asset and uh yeah i'm still hot on the guy i feel like <laughs> film nerd culture is like cooled on him but i still think he makes very funny smart movies yeah yeah i mean i do think his three films, I think, are the more interesting when I compare it to like everything everywhere, like the Daniels or, you know, Martin McDonough. I like his stuff the most. I think it's the most like consistent. And he's the least likely to win, according to Vegas. <laughs> and the least <laughs> likely to win. So there you go. Yeah. And, it, and Triangle of Sadness is like, you know, a lot of people have said, and we've talked about how it's. It's not subtle, you know, but it is smart and it's well observed, even if it's not like this nuanced critique of of wealth. I mean, it's just extremely funny and super, super entertaining. I think I might be most interested in where the Daniels career are going to go because I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was saying. Do they go more zany or do they go more like I don't rounded? have an answer. But yeah, I think, you know, calling back to what you were saying where do you go beyond everything, everywhere, all at once? You know, like I could see them doing another, uh, like I feel like Swiss Army Man was a little twee explosion of one strand of humanity. Everything, everywhere, all at once was trying to grapple with like these huge, huge ideas with huge concepts. I could see them doing another like Swiss Army Man, maybe with like a little more, experience and like more interesting visuals maybe not that it wasn't interesting visually but i don't know that you can get beyond everything everywhere like multiverse when you start at 11 how do you turn up from there like yeah Yeah. we've already like started at the most manic place yeah 
And it's worth repeating that it's incredibly cool that a movie that odd is getting like official recognition for being great. Like, I don't right. know. I think it's very cool that like, like I said, I'm not going to prognosticate about what they're going to win, but they were nominated for 11 things. So no matter what, that movie will, they will win, win Oscars. Something. That's nuts. Like, I, I really, I think that's like encouraging yeah. about the trajectory of the film industry. And there will be a lot of movies that take the wrong lessons and make a terrible meme film inspired by yeah, it. Yeah, Totally. But there's still more room for like exciting, imaginative Oscar films now. The same way that when when Parasite won a few years ago, that was like a good sign for like just um, daring, violent genre pictures. You know, yeah. like it it helps those movies get greenlit, which is great. I know, I know we don't get into like predictions or picks, but well, no one listens this deep into the episode, so I, I think this is the space to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if we're if we are picking like. I've not seen the Fablemans, but I doubt that's going to... Who's our pick for best director? I think the Daniels have it pretty much locked down. Yeah. But is that is that your pick, like, Vegas odds? Like, you think they're going to win, or do you think they... Who do you think deserves to win? I think... That's for, the question I was asking. Of the five people, from a directing standpoint, I mean, I think that they do deserve to win. Yeah. That was such a feat from, like a technical standpoint and from like, I thought the writing was great. I thought it was really moving, you know, I, so if I'm thinking of directing as like pulling all of these pieces together mm -hmm. and making a film, like that was the most impressive to me. Yeah. I actually would agree with that. And for branding purposes, I have to double down that that was Swamp Flicks's favorite movie of the year. <laughs> so it deserves it's all the awards. That's yeah. right. We put our stamp of approval it on it. It must win. Yeah. We've got our fingers in the pie, so we're going to make it happen. I'm also going to triple down and like retract something I said earlier. I I'm just going to do this every year. I don't know. This is like a good state of the union, I think. Of yeah, like I agree. Where movies are. Um, mm -hmm. And I think after having this conversation, I feel... Like, this is more fruitful than I was worried it was going to be. <laughs> okay, what would have happened if we watched Two Leslie and, like, right. three other Andrea Riseborough movies? Would we have come out with a deeper appreciation of her? I don't know. I like her a lot already. Yeah. I already appreciate her. I do want to see that movie, right. though. And I guess the thing is, like, we can still do that at any point. But, the yeah, this is, like, getting your finger on the pulse yeah. of all of the all of the films and the directors. The Oscars are a great reason to eat junk food. Mm -hmm. And they're also a great reason to talk about movies that aren't Marvel films. Right. <laughs> like, that's like the two things it's good at. It's an interesting talking point. It's not really like a stamp of like approval of like what actually was the best art of that right. year. It's like more about marketing and like green lighting what's next. Yeah. So yeah, I feel, I feel better about the state of the union and uh, cinema after mm -hmm. having this discussion. Yeah. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to talk about a murder mystery comedy called Murder by Death from the 70s ah, with Peter Falk. That's the classic mode of murder. Yes. Murder <laughs> by Death. Right. I really liked it in high school. It was like my preferred version of Clue mm. where it's like kind of like satirizing every style of um, detective all at once. So there's like a there's an Agatha Christie yeah. stand in. There's like a Sherlock Holmes kind of stand in. Mm -hmm. Peter Falk is playing Columbo basically in the movie. Like, oh, I love, I do love Peter Falk. He's very funny in this. Yeah. Um, there is also a lot of dated humor that um, politically has not aged well in Bruce style. So we'll see <laughs> if this is a nostalgia check for me in the similar way. Um, but yeah, Murder by Death next episode. Talk to y'all then. You're going to need a bigger boat. I've got the Oscar fever. Bye.
Okay.